Amen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you to the praise team. Bet they had fun practicing that this week. Hey, um, we are continuing. We're in week two of our series, All Men Are Created Equal. We're tackling the subject of racism in our country. And so today we are um, taking the next step in this conversation. Last week we talked about how we are one race, the human race, or as the Bible would say, the humankind. Um, and so the implications that roll out of that. And then this week we're going to step into the concept of victimhood, especially as it appears in minority communities um, in our country as well as globally. And so we want to tackle that, um, that perspective of life, that worldview uh, that the victim has, um, and to see whether or not that's a healthy thing. Um, our scripture today comes from Numbers chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. I want to do just a little bit of background before we read so you know where we're coming from. Um, I've got a map for you here. The um, Israelites are out wandering around in the desert in Numbers chapter 13. They've been out there for about two years now, and they've made their way up in the north, uh, in the area of, called the Wilderness of Paran. You can see it there on the map. And uh, so they send out these spies because they want to go and take the land of Israel up north of there. And so they send out these spies into the land to go figure out what's the land like. Nobody's been there, and it's been a long time, 400 years of slavery. And so they want to know, is there good farmland there? Is it worth us going in and taking? What sort of uh, people are we going to come up against? What might we anticipate? And so the spies go up. They uh, investigate the land. Forty days later, they come back, and what we're going to read is their report to the land of Israel, to the people of Israel out there in the desert, okay? So let's stand up for the reading of God's word, as is our tradition here. Uh, Numbers chapter 13, we'll begin reading at verse 25. Here we go. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land of which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in there are of a great height. You may be seated. I know that was a big mouthful. Y'all did a great job hanging in there. Um, let's kind of walk through these verses together. We're going to start at verse 35. It says that at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. So the uh, spies have made their way back um, from their trip 40 days later, and they come back to the people. Verse 26 it says, The spies came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel. Verse 27. And they told Moses and they told the people, Hey, look, we came into the land to which you sent us. Good news, everybody. It flows with milk and honey. What we hoped we would find, we have found. Uh, it's great farmland there. It's got lots of uh, prosperity, lots of opportunity there. Um, and so they said, hey, look, we've even brought back a sample of the fruit. They brought back some of the grapes with them. Take a look at this. I mean, there's an abundance of, of, of opportunity there. So the spies continue, verse 28. However, however, 
The people who dwell in that land, they are really strong. And the cities that they occupy, the cities where they live, are fortified. They've got these massive walls built around their cities. I mean, we don't know how we're going to get over those things. We don't know how we're going to get through those things. They've got these big, giant gates. I mean, what are we supposed to do? And there's these cities dotted all over the place. And he even goes on to say that the cities themselves are very large. That is, the population of these cities are quite great. We were expecting to go in, maybe find a couple of hundred people living in a com communal area, but instead we found thousands of people living in these areas together, and they've got these fortified cities to protect them. So the report that they come back with is kind of a mixed bag. It's, there's some positives, that is that the land's flowing with milk and honey. There's lots of opportunity there. There's lots of stuff for us to go in and, 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 and be able to consume and use, and we'll be able to farm, and it'll be great. However, there's all these people there, and it goes on to say about how they're the descendants of Anak, that is that there's these giant people. I mean, they're twice as tall as we are. You can imagine these little Israelite folks, these little Jewish people wandering around the desert. They're like, they're, they're twice as tall as we are. I mean, what are we supposed to do going there against folks like that? So it's kind of a mixed bag of a report. Well, Caleb pipes up, verse 30. Here's what he says. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, let us go up at once. No hesitation. We got this. Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then a few verses later, Caleb repeats his same optimistic perspective of the situation. He says in chapter 14 and verse 8, he says, If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land, and God's going to give it to us. Verse 9, Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. We're going to go in and we're going to consume these people. Don't y'all know how this works? We're the people of God. God's with us. We're going to go in and we're going to devour this land. It's not going to devour us. We're going to devour it and its inhabitants. Their protection, he says, is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Very different, right? So you got the 10 spies come back. They're like, eh, I'm not so sure. You got Caleb and you got Joshua as well. Caleb's the one speaking at this point. And he's saying, we can do this. We can, this can happen. This, surely God is with us. Now, here's a guy who's raring to go. He thinks that this can be done. But again, not everybody shares Caleb's perspective. Take a look at what the spies report. Verse 31 says, the men who had gone up with Caleb, remember they had a 40-day journey up and back. And so on the road back, as they're sitting around campfires, as they're walking down the road, they're talking about all that they saw. They're talking about all that they uh, encountered. And they're thinking, they're processing this uh, with one another. So these other 10 spies, it says, uh, you know, I don't know what Caleb was drinking. But I'm telling you, I, I, we, got, we came out on a very different place than where, where Caleb did. And so they say, but we're not able to go up against these people, for they are much stronger than we are. Remember, there's these giant people that live in this land. And so, the, so they kind of have this resignation of defeat, this we can't do this, whereas Caleb on the other side saying, absolutely we can. I have no doubt that this is going to work out. Um, middle of verse 32, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. If we go in there, we're going to get creamed. We're going to get crushed. We're not going to walk out of there bleeding even. We're, just, we're going to be destroyed. If, we're going to get devoured if we go into this land. Um, now, the people of God, they hear all of this, right? The Israelites are hearing uh, the spies give their different reports. And so they have, an op they have some choices to make. They can go with option number one, which is to follow Caleb's you know, following the coattails of his optimistic perspective of things and to go with what Caleb says and to say, you know, we can do this. God's been with us in the past. He delivered us from the Red Sea. He delivered us from the Egyptian army. Absolutely, we can go in and accomplish this. Let's, so option number one is we go to war, we take the land. Option number two is we follow what the Back to Egypt Club 
that's gathering now wants to do, right? We need to go back to Egypt. We need to go back to slavery because back when we were in slavery, at least we had our lives. At least we weren't dead. I mean, I know we had our taskmasters. I know that we had difficult conditions, but we had food on the table and we preserved our life. And so at least we'd have that. And so this back to Egypt club wants to start in the circle, starting to gather and starting to make its way into people's minds. So what do the people choose? Well, look at chapter 14 and verse 1. It says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and they wept through the night. Oh, what was me, right? Had one of those kind of nights. Like, things are just not going well. Verse 2, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, their great leader. And they grumbled against Aaron, his brother, their other great leader. And they said amongst themselves, verse 2, Let us choose a new leader, because we want to go back. Egypt, the back to Egypt club, I mean, the members are just flying in right now, right? Um, and so they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to slavery. They want to go back to the taskmasters because, well, at least we won't die, right? At least we'll have our life. At least we'll have food on the table because we go up into that land. I mean, who knows what's going to happen, right? Reminds me of the scene. Y'all know the movie Braveheart. William Wallace is out. He's got his Scottish troops. They're all gathered together. They're kind of a ragtag militia type of group. And then you've got the British soldiers across the battlefield. And so the uh, Scottish army assembles on the battlefield and they look across the battlefield and there's all these professional soldiers with all their armor, all their latest technology. They've got spears. They've got glistening stuff. And the, the Scottish warriors are going, wow, what are we going to do against that? And so many of the guys just start dropping off, right? They start peeling out of the back of the group. They start heading back toward home. William Wallace realizes he needs to rally his troops, and so he rides out on the horse, hops off the horse, and starts giving a great big speech. And one of the things that he says in the speech, he says, years from now, lying in your beds, trying to put a little perspective on things, would you not trade all the days from now until then for one chance, he says, just one chance to have your freedom, that is to be out from under your British overlords, to be a free people, to tell these folks today on this battlefield that maybe if we could actually win this battle, that we could tell the British that they're out of here and that we own our own land, that we are our own people. And so, you know, very similar type of situation. Caleb's out in front of the people. He's trying to give them the, hey, we can do this. Here's our chance. It's right in front of us. There's the opportunities right there. And so the problem is, you know, same speech that William Wallen gets, but different result. Caleb has the confidence. He says in verse 30, let us go up at once, for we are well able to do this. Caleb knows how they're going to do this. Verse 9, verse chapter 14, he says, for the Lord is with us. Do not fear these people. Two very contrasting choices, two very contrasting perspectives or outlooks on things. You have Caleb on the one hand who's optimistic, we can do this, this is an opportunity, let's, let's take advantage of it. And then you have the ten spies on the other hand who are thinking, you know what, if we go in there, who knows what could happen? Things may go really wrong. A lot of obstacles, a lot of suffering in front of us. And so remember this, though, that Caleb saw, Caleb went into the land with the other 12, 10 spies, right? Caleb and Joshua, they were along with the other, there was 12 of them all total. So they go into the land, they see the same giants. It wasn't like Caleb saw smaller giants than the other 10 saw, right? He saw the same giants. Caleb saw the same fortified cities. He, the other guys didn't go around and see more fortified cities than Caleb did. They all trans, went together, and they saw the same cities. They saw the same height of the walls. They saw the same populations of indigenous people that lived there in that area. Uh, but he exited the experience with a very different perspective. He saw an opportunity. He knew that God was on their side. We can do this. Whereas the other 10 came out going, it's time for us to go back to Egypt. All right, well, that's our text for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask the question we ask every week around here, 
what difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate the little history lesson there, um, but I'm not out in the desert of Israel. In fact, I'm hoping I'll be in my recliner in about an hour. So what difference does any of this make to me? And what does this have to do with racism? I mean, what does this have to do with, you know, that sort of thing? So let's talk. That's a great question. Let's see if we can talk about that. I got a question for you. Just in your mind, thinking about what are some of the factors, what are some of the things that prevent a person from rising up, from achieving success, from taking their life at the early stages or at the early years or as they're heading off towards school or doing whatever it might be that they're doing? What are the, some of the things that might prevent a person from rising out of poverty or just rising up and achieving their own success in life? I got a couple of things that I um, have for you here on the board. So look at some of these checks, check boxes here. Um, some of the factors that might co- contribute to a person, preventing a person from rising into success. Factors like crime, bad morals, teenage pregnancy, access to good education, a lack of healthy role models. I mean, you don't have good role models in your life. That might be something that would prevent you from taking the next step on your way towards success. A lack of ambition, good nutrition, affordable health care. And that list, friends, can go on and on and on. And you'll notice in that list that some of the items on that list you and I have no control over. We have no control over how we were raised or what environment we were raised in or what, uh, what opportunities were presented to us uh, in, in, our, in our growing up. Um, and so a lot of those checkboxes, again, we don't have control over. Some we do. Uh, but let's not gloss over the fact that some people, especially the urban poor, have a harder time, a more difficult path towards success because a lot of those boxes for them will be checked off. Can we acknowledge that? And this was the subject of an um, fa- all-faculty meeting at Point University um, this past fall. I went to our, all the faculty gathered together, and so I'm sitting there in the room, and we went through, it was a whole day of, you know, how can we help with retention rates, uh, grading, how do you submit grades under the new computer software system, you know, all that sorts of stuff, as well as some, uh, what do you call that, teaching, ongoing, continuing education type of stuff, right? Well, the last presenter of the day was a professor at the school. He's a sociologist, and he got up, and he talked about, for an hour, he talked about the subject of white privilege, white privilege in America. Um, And so he went on to talk about, hey, look, if you're a white person who grows up in America, you have more opportunity. You have more uh, things going for you than somebody who does not. And he cited statistic after statistic after statistic that if you're a white person living in America, that the odds of you achieving success or rising up and achieving your dreams, the odds of that are much greater than somebody who grows up as a minority living in America. And there's some truth in what he has to say. Um, There's some just truth. I mean, the statistics are statistics. It's math. Um, And so there's some truth in what he has to say. Um, It would be no different than me living in Latin America, right? Can you imagine me walking around in Latin America? I don't know the language. I don't look like the local people. I mean, is anybody going to come to my shop? Is anybody going to come and, and, and to my business? More, less people perhaps would because I'm a minority living in that culture. So I would expect that that would be the case. I would expect that that might happen, uh, that I, there would be some privilege that goes along with somebody who is in the majority in a particular culture, in a particular uh, community. Um, but what I do debate, and I, as I was sitting there listening to this guy give this, uh, I mean, he went on for an hour. I thought, good gracious, you could have made your point in like five minutes. But nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, he, uh, yeah, why say in 500 words what you could say in 5,000, right? 
So I, I read too many books like that. It's like, what is wrong with these folks? But anyway, um, so, but what I did take issue with, or what I was unsettled with, I, I kept asking myself the question, yes, there is part of this conversation that you're having that is true. However, is it helpful? Is it helpful? Or is it the exact opposite of what you're trying to accomplish? Is it harmful? And I would argue no, that it is actually harmful. In other words, does pointing out that some people have a more difficult road, that some people have a lot more boxes checked, is that helpful to them obtaining success in life, or rather, is it more harmful to them achieving success? Does it hold people back? Does it stall them out from fulfilling what their potential would allow them to do? Does it limit their future success? Again, I would argue that it holds people back. Why? Because it gets people thinking about themselves as victims. It gets people painting themselves and people who look like them or people who are in their similar situation as victims. And that is a backward-looking way of life rather than a forward-looking way of life. Victims want their rights. You know, until you clear the path, set the stones out there for me to walk on, I'm just going to stand right here. And isn't that what the Israelites did? The Israelites said, God, put before us an opportunity. But God, why didn't you clear the path? Why didn't you, why didn't you knock out all those people? Why do we have to go in there? Why do we have to fight? Why do I have to pick up a spear? Why do I have to do any of this? Why do I have to engage in any of this? Why don't you just clear the path for me, God, and then I'll just go walk that easy path ahead of me? And so, friends, this conversation about white privilege in America, I think it's actually producing a culture of victimhood in our country. And it's in all the sociology classes that you send your kids off to when they go to college. This is the kind of stuff that they're hearing. Did Caleb have a victim mentality? Did he say, hey, God, why do I have to go fight this battle? God, well, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? God, some of us might die. God, some of us might be badly wounded. God, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to go through this? Caleb didn't have that response, but the people of Israel did. They cried and they wept because this is not fair. God, you were supposed to take care of all of it for me. They grumbled against Moses. They had a victim mentality. And the result was they didn't go anywhere. They wandered around for a generation until finally God could get a group of people together who had a more optimistic approach to life, a more forward-looking approach to things to say, you're putting an opportunity in front of me, Hey, I'm ready to seize on that opportunity. That's the kind of mentality, the kind of worldview, the kind of approach that God needed out of the people of Israel. I'd like to tell you a story about a guy by the name of Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington, if you've never read his autobiography, I encourage you to do it. It's called Up From Slavery. And Booker T. Washington is one of the greatest Americans ever to have lived. I got a picture of him here for you. Booker T. Washington was born in Franklin County, Virginia, just south of Roanoke. He never met his father. He supposed that he was born in the year either 1858 or 1859. He never knew the date. He was, born, uh, <clears throat> he was born a slave. He grew up on a plantation. He writes, In my youth there was no period of my life that was devoted to play. Think about that. Never went out and played. From the time that I can remember anything, almost every day of my life has been occupied by some kind of labor. As a very young child, he would carry water out to the men who were working in the field. He was expected at 
just when he could start walking, to be out sweeping the yards, out in front of the plantation, out in front of his house. That's what he did. He swept the yards. He was responsible for that at like three years of age. At the age of five, he was driving an ox cart down to the mill. He lived with his mother and his stepbrother and stepsister in a small one-room cabin on the edge of the plantation property. For clothing, he wore a single garment, just had one piece of clothing, and it was called a flax shirt, and it came down, I guess, to about his knees. And they got one flax shirt per year. And this flax material was like burlap. And you can imagine putting on a piece of burlap, especially a new piece of burlap that hadn't been worked in yet. He said it just irritated his skin horribly until he had finally worn that flax shirt in. In the cold winters, his flax shirt did nothing to keep him warm. His bed was a pile of filthy rags on a dirt cabin floor. After the Civil War, still as a young boy, he and his family moved to West Virginia where he was put to work in the coal mines. Child labor was very common in those days, and the conditions were deplorable. His workday began at 4 o'clock in the morning, as like a 10-year-old at 4 o'clock in the morning, working in the coal mines. Any money that he made went straight to helping his family. Booker always wanted to learn to read, something that the white slave owners did not permit. In fact, they put a whipping to any slave who would ever attempt to read because they didn't want the slaves thinking. They didn't want the slaves entering into some sort of rebellion. They wanted to keep them suppressed, and so they didn't allow people to read. But now as a free man, Booker T. Washington started attending night school. And as he advanced in his studies, he said, it grew increasingly difficult to find a teacher. And he writes, and I quote, Sometimes after I had secured someone to teach me, I would find much to my disappointment that the teacher knew but little more than I did. He said, often I would have to walk several miles at night after a long day of work in the coal mines that started at 4 o'clock in the morning. You'd have to walk a long ways through the night, he says, in order to recite my lessons. One day he has a breakthrough. He writes, and I quote, One day while at work in the coal mine, I happened to overhear two miners talking about a great school for colored people somewhere in Virginia. In the darkness of the mine, I noiselessly crept as close as I could to the two men who were talking. I heard one tell the other that not only was the school established for the member of my race, but that opportunities were provided by which poor but worthy students could work out all or part of the cost of their board and at the same time be taught some trade or some industry. He goes on. As they went on describing the school, it seemed to me that it must be the greatest place on earth. He's so excited about this, sitting there in the the darkness of the mine. And not even heaven presented more attractions to me at that time than did the Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute of Virginia. I got a picture of it here for you. This is where he went, about which these men were talking. I resolved at once to go to that school, although I had no idea where it was. No idea how many miles away it was, he says, or how I was ever going to get there. I remembered only that I was on fire constantly with one ambition, and that was to go to the Hampton. This thought was with me day and night, end of quote. I think that we can all agree, just from the little bit that I've shared with you of his story and of the odds that were stacked against him, that Booker T. Washington had a whole lot of those check boxes checked off. In fact, he had boxes that we don't even have on our screen. And I'm sure that anybody who was looking at his life or somebody that was coming out of the circumstances of his life would have thought, hey, you know what? This guy's life probably won't matter to a whole lot. It probably won't turn out the way that it ended up. Booker T. Washington would go on to become a teacher at the school, at the Hampton Institute. Uh, He taught Native American Indians how to read and how to write. He taught people of his own color how to read and how to write that were coming out of a situation, again, off plantations where nobody knew how to read and write. 
Um, he lifted his people. And then he would later go on to found the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. And I tell you, friends, if you read his story, getting that thing off the ground, those early years, first five, ten years, it was nothing but struggle. It was nothing but sacrifice. He had the Ku Klux Klan working in the area. He had so many things going against him that prevent him from succeeding, prevent him from having any kind of success. And yet he persevered through it all. What was the difference in Mr. Washington? Why was he able to succeed where so many others in his situation were not? Simply comes down to his attitude and his perseverance. He did not concede to a victim mentality. He didn't say, hey, you know what? Life's not fair. He didn't wallow in self-pity. He didn't stop and say, you know what, God, until you clear the path, until you set the stones out in front of me and give me an easy, comfortable ride on the way to get to where I want to go, God, I'm just going to stay right here. And friends, that's what would have happened to his life. He would have, just like the Israelites, spent a whole generation, spent a whole 40 years of his life, or however long he ended up living, he'd have spent the whole of it wandering around and never getting anywhere. But rather, he set his gaze on the prize, he set his gaze on independence and on his life mission of raising black men and women and lifting his people out of poverty. If he had sat around complaining about the hardships, if he had whined about his lack of money, if he had wallowed in self-pity, he'd have been just like the Israelites. He would have gone nowhere. Thomas Jefferson <clears throat> said these words, Nothing can stop the man with the right mental attitude from achieving his goal. Nothing on earth, he said, can help the man with the wrong mental attitude. Thomas Edison once wrote, Opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. The King James Version of the Bible says, Proverbs 23 and verse 7, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. How you see yourself, how you see what God wants to accomplish through your life, how you view where you're going, that will determine whether or not you get there. The battlefield of the mind is where much of success is won and lost. Friends, our culture is on a victim trip. And you can choose to be a part of it. You can wander around in the desert, or you can be like Caleb. You can be like Booker T. Washington, who set their focus not on the checkboxes, not on all the odds that were stacked against them, but rather on where they were going, on the opportunity that was afforded them. I will warn you, though, if you make this choice, like Booker T. Washington did, like Caleb did, and so many others who have been successful in our world have done, if you make this choice, there will be one spy, two spies, three spies. They will come out of the woodworks, friends, to come and try and talk you out of where it is that you're going. If you want to go back to school to better yourself, if you want to better yourself in your life, if you want to clean up your act, if you want to choose your family over your career, if you, want to, if you need to find a better group of friends, if you need to get out of a relationship, there will be people that will come alongside of you and will say, hey, it's not worth it. Join the pity party. Why? Because there's a deep-seated need in the human nature for self-justification. Misery loves... It does. When Jesus was carrying the cross through the streets of Jerusalem, his body was beaten... His back was laid open, blood flowing from every orifice of his body. 
the, uh, he just fell, falls to the ground under the weight and the exhaustion of the cross. One of the soldiers says, you, Simon, come here. Simon of Cyrene grabs Jesus' cross and gets under the weight of it and begins to march down the road. And the scriptures say, Luke chapter 23 and verse 27, that the women of Jerusalem were mourning and were lamenting for him, following behind him. Listen to Jesus' response to those who were weeping and mourning for him. It says in verse 28, Jesus said, Do not weep for me. Don't look on me with pity. I'm on a mission. I have a place to go that God has appointed for me. A success that lies on the other side of all this suffering and on the other side of all of this sacrifice. Friends, I trust that some of what we've shared today has touched your heart. I trust that some of what we've shared today has given you some new perspective. I'd like to close with a quote from our dear friend, Mr. Booker T. Washington. He writes, I have learned that success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacles that he has overcome while trying to succeed. He goes on to write, Looked at from this standpoint, I almost reached the conclusion that often the Negro boy's birth and connection with an unpopular race is an advantage as for real life is concerned. With few exceptions, the Negro youth must work harder and must perform his tasks even better than a white youth in order to secure recognition out of the hard struggle through which he is compelled to pass. He gets a strength, he gets a confidence that one misses whose pathway is comparatively smooth by reason of birth and race. In other words, don't feel sorry for me. All I ever wanted in life was an opportunity. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us from your word today, for seeing the life of those, including your own, who had every right, every notion to wallow in self-pity. And let, yet, Lord, you didn't. You said, do not weep for me. I, I'm, in the middle of, I'm in the middle of God's mission. I, I'm on the way to victory here. Lord, may we see our circumstances in that same light. That you are with us. And that, Lord, you with us will lead us to victory. Lord, as we gather around this table to remember your broken body and your shed blood, we are so grateful and so thankful. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.